Germany unilaterally declared war on the United States on the 11th of December. It was the third major strategic blunder Adolf Hitler would commit in 18 months. Welcome back to I Americanized, a podcast that explores America's influences. I am Shafi Hussein, your host, and today we're discussing America's influence on Germany. And a twist, Germany's influence on America with a University of Massachusetts Amherst history professor, Andrew Donson. He has a lot of interesting research on German youth and why they became fascist. This episode, we have a fascinating conversation about America's influence on Germany. We discuss America's occupation post Second World War. We talk about Fordism and assembly lines and how that was uh, American export to Germany. And obviously, we also look at Germany's influence on America, given the influx of German immigrants to America. Fantastic episode, really fun. If you like the podcast, obviously, make sure to leave an iTunes review on Apple Podcast and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I, I have Jewish heritage. Mm. Um, and, uh, my father, uh, was an attorney and then became an art dealer right. and he, uh, collected and sold and bought German art, um, mm. also French art, but, uh, gra graphic work, printing and drawing, um, and particularly German expressionism, uh, mm. was, is one of the areas that he was an expert. Um, so the other thing is within the German Jewish world mm. um there's a big difference between shtetl jews who came from uh you know poor parts of poland and russia um, and were largely uneducated when they came and uh german jews um who were arguably when they were in germany um the most successful minority in the history of the world wow um, and, <laughs> i love that yeah I mean, so that's you, great yeah, I mean, any way you want to measure it, for right. example, um, education. I mean, I'll give you one example. In Hamburg in 1900, um, only about 7% of boys went to high school. Among the German Jews, 90% mm. went to high school. Wow, that's huge. So they made up a half a percent of the population, um, but they nevertheless, by 1920, uh, made up uh, a quarter of the attorneys and 20% of uh, the um, physicians in the mm. country. And in places like Berlin, which had the largest Jewish community, um, you know, if you went to a doctor, it was likely that it was a Jewish doctor. Um, the other thing is that um, uh, German Jews won 20 Nobel Prizes. Um, and so, I mean, those are some measures that the kind of German Jews were, you know, the most successful Jews. Now, so my family, which they were actually shtetl Jews, but they came 
through Vienna. Um, mm. uh, they were, uh, um, I'm not exactly sure, but they, they went through Berlin and through Vienna. I think they lived there, uh, for a certain amount of time. And, um, you know, uh, they saw that the German Jews were the educated ones, um, the successful ones, and they identified with, uh, German, the German Jews. Mm. Um, and so even after the, you know, the Second World War, when the reputation of Germany obviously uh, declined, um, my family always kind of looked at Germany as, you know, the place of culture, um, the, you know, uh, where, um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, having German Jewish heritage is kind of makes you an elite. Mm. And to some extent, that's still true today. I mean, within the, the historical profession, I mean, the, the kind of Jews that I know uh, who study German history who have who are, have German Jewish um, a background. It's the same with stand up comedy too. towards like the shtetl Jews like me, you know. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so I grew up thinking that Germany was the place. You know, I had German art on the on the wall uh, as I grew up. Uh, I studied philosophy and I studied German philosophy. Um. My family thought that was great, you know. So I studied Marx and Hegel and. Kant and Nietzsche, um, and uh, so I was really into into that. And so um, after, uh, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree, right? So after <laughs> college, I went to Germany to, wow. and I taught English as a second language. I went all by right. myself, right. and I I uh, took German classes in the morning and taught English in the evening. Um, and I was there for about a year, and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Mm. And so I applied to grad grad school and uh, I didn't want to do philosophy because it was just actually too hard. Um, and so I did, I applied for uh, programs in German history and um, one thing left to another, you know, led to another and all of a sudden, you know, here I am, German <laughs> historian, you know, you make these decisions when you're in your early 20s and they just kind of follow you the rest of your life. Right. Like, yeah. Especially if you're like applying to a grad school, it's just like, like that's, that's one of the reasons I was kind of scared of applying to grad school is because your entire life kind of hinges on doing that research. And I had, I had friends who were like um, telling me about at the time, I, at least there was like not a lot of grants in the, in the field I was studying. I was like doing a lot of uh, biofuel research and it was like withering away <laughs> and i was like okay i'll take a break and join industry for a bit and then try to see what to do like i'm like, i'm doing like online masters and uh, that's all fun but you know like the tc like the research and the thesis that you have it's, it's uh, fascinating because i when i was reading up on you you have a lot of uh, research on the german youth and how they kind of how, how they kind of became fascist, right? 20, 20 years later. Or, and you talk about the economic policies in place and obviously scapegoating is one of the classic examples of pitting one against another. Would you like to briefly expand on how that was kind of the thing that you f fell upon and uh, looked into? Uh, well, I just kind of fell on to the topic by serendipity and then mm. I said, well, nobody has studied German youth in the First World War. Mm. Um, and so that became uh, my dissertation topic. I mean, the so we can say that um, after the First World War in the early 1920s, in kind of fascist, uh, pro proto-fascist, called fascist, uh, Freikorps groups, which were 
paramilitary, extra-legal paramilitary. Um, about a third of the members in those groups, we're talking, you know, two, three, one, two, three years after the war, about a third of the members had not fought in the First World War. Mm. Um, and they were the so-called victory watchers who grew up uh, thinking that the war was the place where you could demonstrate your manhood. Um, and they were, you know, proud uh, nationalists. And when the war ended and they didn't get their chance to go fight um, and uh, Germany was taken over by you know, democratic socialists, um, workers, you know, they were angry and they joined these groups. Um, they fought um, uh, kind of Polish nationalists in the East um, and also in the uh, Russian Civil War. Um, and then they came home. And if you look at the no- Nazi party, it was a young party. I mean, mm. uh, the co- uh, you know, I would say, you know, the veterans were the key, a key constituent in it. Um, but I think in the early 1930s, the average age of a Nazi party member was 25. Wow. Um, whereas the average age of someone in the more established parties like the Social Democratic Party um, or the Catholic Center Party, you know, was in their in their 40s, maybe even their 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, and by the way, this also was similar in Italy, um, whereas the fascist party was also a young party and made up of, uh, of kind of young men who were angry that they didn't get a chance to fight right, anymore. Right. Do you see any parallels of that in the U.S. with like the 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 extreme right or or the extreme left? Do you think they're also like kind of the young rebellions who tried to voice their opinion a bit more than the older people? Is that something that's? I think that's true everywhere. When I mean, you mm. look at who causes trouble, it's usually mm. young men, you know, who <laughs> haven't haven't really developed their executive functioning skills yet, yeah. um, and. Uh, so that it's not a surprise, really, that radical groups will draw upon you know, younger men right. who are ones who are more willing to take, take risks. So when you looked into your research, was it mostly men or was like uh, some amount of women that were like, yeah, feminism, let's do this? Like, do, was, there a, was there a rise of, of uh, the, the women who wanted to also take part into the Nazi party that was so popular at the time? Okay, so my uh, book was a general history of youth in the First World War, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the kind of cohort, the Nazi youth cohort, we could call mm-hmm. them. You know, we're we're talking a, you know a few thousand, maybe ten thousand. So, okay. but everybody wants to know about them. You know, that's always like, and so in some ways, um, you know, I'm that youth Nazi guy, um, <laughs> and in fact, my book is about all youth, right? And it's about boys and girls. Mm. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I, I did not find evidence of kind of fascist women. Wow. Um, was more of, I mean, I mean, you see kind of elements of it, maybe, right. you know, nationalism, a mm. kind of glorification of the domestic life, glorification of motherhood, mm. um, you know, um, loyalty to the nation, uh, sac- sacrifice. To men, I mean, there were lots of nationalists, um, and uh, but but the the line towards towards Nazism within the you know among girls of the age of the First World War, I, I really didn't find evidence of that. 
Not that it's what, what was the hypothesis of why they wouldn't be as um, I guess influenced by by the by the war as the men? Is it because oh, they definitely were influenced, right? Um, and it definitely shaped their thinking over the 1920s and early 30s. Yeah, um, uh, I just didn't find any evidence of how it changed. You know, I didn't find any evidence that. Uh, the war made them fast. I mean, fascism in, in the early 1920s, 1919. This is the you know these paramilitaries. They are they're male. Uh, mm. These are these are single men. Um, these are you know so that's. But my book is about all youth, so it's about left wing youth as well, mm. um, and uh, the the kind of most vigorous anti war movement during the First World War was led by young, uh, actually. Boys and girls, teenagers, um, right. and they—they they were the ones who organized uh, underground protests and smuggled in anti-war literature and pamphlets. Um, and one of the reasons why was because, you know, male radicals would be conscripted and sent to the front, um, whereas uh, these boys and girls, you know, they—they—they they, they didn't get, you know, they, they weren't risking their their lives to become cannon fodder. Mm. Um, so, and that. If you look at the Communist Party right after the war, um, and the the kind of cohort of communists, it's like the Nazi Party in that you know there's a it, it's it's a young it was a young party, and it also welcomed women. So there were lots of radical women in uh, the communist in the Communist Party. Um, that's also because socialists had always kind of promoted uh, careers of of women. Um, and so, you know, some of the greatest, well, I would say most of the greatest politicians um, of uh, the early 1920s, immediate post-war uh, period, were kind of left-wing socialists, okay. left-wing socialist women. Um, okay, wow. So, you know, we kind of we kind of discussed about, you know, America's influence and Germany's influence on 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 each other right so like let's get started with like talking about i guess america's influence in on germany first influence was you know uh that i mean i i've read there's there's evidence that uh the nazis helped the south shape um you know their racist racist laws and 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 uh the reverse um and i mean and i would say the main influence of germany on eugenics was that uh, because of the uh, euthanasia, the kind of murder of um, you know mentally disabled and physically disabled people, ended eugenics after the Second World War. You cannot be a eugenicist anymore. That ideal is out. Um, whereas if you look at before the war, you know it was a really popular idea and it was widespread and there wasn't really a kind of stigma to it. It was seen as something that. Um, encouraging, you know, encouraging people with congenital or hereditary diseases not to have children was seen as something that would benefit society. That idea was out after the Second World War because of what Germany did. Right. Yeah, because it, it was like a lot of pseudoscience at the time. We didn't really know a lot about the DNA because it wasn't invented. 
Right. So it, it kind of flourished, I feel like, in, in places where people had progressive ideas about, oh, let's all do this together so that so that we can move forward as a society. But at the same time, they weren't really taking or getting consent from people who couldn't even read and had to sign like forms. And they were like, oh, I didn't know that I can't have babies anymore. Like I, no one told me this. It, it was like it, it was like if the Apple user ag- agreement had a line where it says you're going to get sterilized. And we just like, yeah, agree because we don't read the entire thing. But I hope yeah, Apple I mean, something like 10,000 people uh, um, before the Second World War were sterilized against their will in Indiana. Mm. Yeah. And there was nobody being forced sterilized in Germany at that time. Right. Because um, Germany was I, I, was more lax with it than, than America was at the time, which is crazy to think about. So um, uh, American uh, influence of Germany. American influences on Germany. Um, so I, I, I would say that uh, the influence kind of over the Atlantic towards Germany didn't begin until the, really the turn of the 20th century, so around 1900. And mm-hmm. the influence at that point is pretty small. The influence going the other way was huge. And that's because, of course, of immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, of Germany as a leader in uh, arts and industry and and science. Um, uh, so uh, I would I see the kind of first um, American influences on Germany in uh, the kind of movie industry. Um, so silent films, um, mm. early silent films, um, and also in um, literature. I mean the. I think the most popular uh, English book translated into German um, was Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohegans. Um, and one of the most popular writers in Germany, Carl uh, May, who wrote kind of Western stories about cowboys and you know Native Americans, um, and he wrote dozens of these books. They were he was one he was one of the, the most the most successful authors. Um, and people were wildly interested in the American West. Um, Karl May actually had never been there. <laughs> okay, so there, that was the kind of early, that was really the first influence. And, and actually, one of the legacies of that is, you know, um, kids used to play cowboys and Indians in you know 1913. Um, uh, you know that 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 was that kind of popular culture came from the United States. Mm-hmm. And I, I would also say what I found was these kind of petty dreadfuls, these you know, uh, sensationalist, uh, cheap, um, uh, you know, kind of like comic books um, right. about murders and adulterers. Um, um, uh, th- those became popular in Germany and they kind of had their origin in the United States. And I would say that's probably the limit um, okay. of the influence before uh the First World War. Right. Um, after the Second World War, uh, after the First World War, um, one is that there was an American occupation of Germany that people really don't know about. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of intermarriage and many of them stayed. Um, I, in my own research, I found these descriptions of these Americans who occupied, it was a small area around Mainz. Um, but you, the descriptions of them are really incredible because Germans had gone, you know, were starving. Um, they, you know, people had lost, most people had lost, you know, 15, 20% of their body weight. 
And these were exhausted people. And these Americans came. And America was always well fed. You know, America exported grain. People had meat and lots of food. And they came and they couldn't believe how big these men were, right? These big, strong, and they had lots of food and they would give it out. Um, and so that was the kind of early influence, you could say. Um, but really, I think um, it was now kind of American business style that mm. came into Germany in the 1920s. Um, advertising, for example, the kind of uh, mass advertising of consumer goods like chewing gum, you know, <laughs> was following <laughs> was following American models. And then, really, most important was Fordism, um, uh, the assembly line. Um, uh, you know, making factories more efficient by breaking down um, uh, uh, tasks into smaller tasks, um, which, you know, was actually really unpopular. Um, right. Because while it cheapened the productions of goods, it made uh, uh, it, uh, it meant that businesses um, hired, uh, didn't need to hire skilled workers. Um, they could hire people who just did one thing, like, you know, turn a screw all day. Um, and uh, it was also much more efficient um, so that they uh, they laid off a lot of people and they lowered wages. And so Fordism didn't really have a, a positive uh, with most people, you know, outside the, the wealthy industrialists. Fordism was, Fordism was pretty unpopular. Mm. Um, uh, um, and uh, and. You know, there's some evidence of this kind of popular American culture, like um, beauty contests, uh, bathing <laughs> suit contests, right. right in Berlin in the 1920s, hmm. um, uh, and and the movie industry, particularly when talk, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the European cinema could not compete with Hollywood because right. Hollywood has such a huge market. Yeah, um, and so more and more American films, um, uh, American film came into Germany. Um, and uh, you know that's about that's about it. Uh, one thing I always find interesting is that you know that um, in my research, you know, there's not there was not a lot of respect for American democracy among the people who stayed in in Germany. Oh, so wow. there were social democrats, right. right? Who were so who were socialists, um, moderate socialists. Um, and there were liberals um, within the liberal party. Uh, you know, most most of the liberals were skeptical of democracy. They thought that only people uh, of uh, who had station in life, right, who had education, and uh, and were um, uh, independently financial, should kind of be able to influence government. And so, the kind of Democratic Party was a rel relatively small party. Mm. Um, and so um, I, I would say American democracy, uh, democracy was not really exported um, in this in this period. Um, uh, people weren't looking to the United States as a model. Um, and the ones who did actually, I think they, they came over to the United States. Right? Hmm. I mean, they, they left. I wanted to ask you about, you know, you talk about yeah. Fordism and, you know, assembly lines and stuff like that. But yeah. people right now, at least look at Germany as German engineering is superior, right? Like they, the yeah. German cars are better and they have unions. We don't have unions or we have unions, but like not as, as popular in this country. So how did, when did that differ? And when, 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 when did Germany take over as like the superior kind of engineering and unions? 
compared to the US? Well, there are definitely different stories there between mm-hmm. unions and engineering. So uh, in the 19th century, uh, Germany uh, uh, founded the first uh, public research university, the Humboldt University, uh, or the university as, as actually the University of Berlin. And um, the and the land grant universities in the United States were all based on this German model of uh, of universities that not only educated um, people, students, but also produced research. Um, and because of that, you know, Germany became the the leader in the world by the end of the 19th century in uh, in science, um, particularly the physical sciences, uh, less the biological sciences. And uh, uh, because of that, also founded all sorts of engineering colleges. Um, Germany uh, was the first to have uh, found uh, post-elementary schooling to teach kids, uh, well, teach teenagers skills that they could use in manufacturing. Um, Germany was, you know, one of the, you know, was the best educated country in the world. Um, and uh, elementary schools and universities in the United States were modeled after, after the German system. Um, and, uh, so Germany became a kind of leading, uh, uh, leader in particularly chemi- chemical engineering, um, and, uh, also optics. So if you were going to buy a camera, you know, in, uh, 1900 or 1920, you know, you wanted a German camera. They were the best for micro, uh, uh, microscopes um, and electronics as well. Um, and uh, and they were these were big uh, companies uh, who made high high quality high quality goods. Um, not the automobile. Okay, the automobile came late. I mean, the United States beat Germany in productions of automobiles, um, but we're talking more optics and chemical engineering. So something like Fritz Haber. Uh, who invented the nitrogen nitrogen fixation like yeah, artificial yeah, yeah. fixation first, process right? first thing we learn in chemical engineering oh really yeah, yeah. yeah so he was a german jew actually yeah yeah and you know really and it's not a surprise that that really important invention came out of uh of 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 germany um and uh uh you know it's a question i always had i mean how did, how was it that particularly after the second world war that germany so quickly recovered and became again a kind of leader in industry, um, and uh, uh, you know, and I I have a whole set of reasons, you know, um, American money coming in, uh, particularly tradition, a kind of long tradition of education, excellent universities, highly educated, kind of excellent science programs. I mean, if if in uh, 1900 uh, you you were going to be a scientist. Um, you went to Germany and studied there for some time. Um, that was the place. Um, most kind of the best science was done in German language journals. Um, that all changed really after the First World War and certainly after the Second World War. Um, but, uh, you know, Germany long had a, a kind of this tradition of making high quality goods. I guess the automobiles really came after the Second World War. Um, and uh, I can't speak to why their engineering is, is so. I could tell you we had a VW that broke down all the time. You know, they're really fun to drive. Germans, you know, they uh, they design the automobiles from the person out, so they feel good, you know, and they're comfortable and handle well. Um, but in terms of reliability, I, I would definitely buy a Jeep. 
<laughs> well, Japanese, uh, like the Toyota Way is like one of the most popular books that I also read, which yeah. kind of which kind of defines and like talks about lean manufacturing. And there was like a lot of you know American um, uh, companies who went to the Toyota company at the time to learn about those principles and then bring it back um, to the U.S. to kind of streamline um, and reduce waste. That's like a huge thing, like, and make like the, the, the popular Japanese word being Kaizen continuous improvement right. is, is what kind of drives all, all right. of the manufacturing uh, efficiencies. Um, in so terms like, of unions, that was your other question. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in 1900, Germany had the largest, best organized, Socialist Party in the world, um, and uh, by that point it wasn't like a they it it was a it was a it was big it was a social democratic party. They didn't they weren't radicals, um, even though most people, you know, thought on <laughs> lots of people thought they were radicals. They had they had rhetoric they used rhetoric of, of revolution. Um, in fact, most of them were kind of what we would call left wing Democrats today. Um, and uh, part of the strength of the social democratic movement was uh, labor unions. Um, and so now when the social democrats came into power in 1918, um, you know, now they legit, they, welcome to my world here. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, they, they, you know, they, now unions were completely protected um, and German unions were very powerful in the 1920s, um, and the Nazi period is something else. Um, and then, in the, you know, they, they they continued to be highly influential in the 1950s. And one of the things is that the unions at that point became less confrontational in the 1950s. And um, uh, you know, the the saying was, "We're all in the same boat." Or, you know, a rising a rising tide lifts uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. And the unions, um, you know, were worked much better. Germany also set up in in the First World War a system of uh, of arbitration, um, so that uh, instead of going on strike, um, the uh, uh, representatives from industry, representatives from the labor union, and a government official would meet um, and try to work out an agreement. Uh, rather than have a kind of lockout or a work stoppage. Um, and uh, that was called uh, co-determination. Um, it lasted for a few years after the second, after the First World War, but it came back really after um, the Second World War. And it was a co-determination was a, a really important way that Germany avoided labor strife. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, as long as the standard of living kept rising, which it did very fast, you know, labor unions weren't looking to go on and make strikes. And they had this system of co-determination, which is still there today that, um, you know, that on the board, there has to, on board of companies of a certain size, there has to be a representation from, from labor. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that long, there's that long tradition of, of unions that have actually been quite productive right, by working together with um, with uh, industry um, rather than being more confrontational. Um, right, because in the in the U.S., like most of the uh, at least when whenever you read about like a company and they're like, oh, they're not really giving back; they only care about the stakeholders, right? Like people who own a lot of shares in the company. But in in, in Germany, it feels like there is kind of 
more of a more of a unified approach to how to lead a company because they have a voice and i don't think our unions have that much power in in, in the us which is interesting to see no, that we, re- we really don't have many unions in industry anymore. right um whereas in, in germany they still do and you know they've gotten they get paid very well um uh, the kind of uh, german uh, workers um you know have a significantly higher the, the median income the median family income Germany is significantly higher than in the United States, even though maybe the average income is higher there. Um, for your general worker, um, you need to protected wages and standards of living. And I also just think it's a, it's, um, it's part today. I mean, I don't know. Um, but I think it's just part of today of the culture, um, that, you know, unions protect people. Uh, they're not, they're not seen as kind of comp, as, as, uh, as, institutions that are trying to you know fight the industrialists right so like after the you know second world war you 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 spoke about how there was like a very fast change of where germany used to be there were like you know superpowers and they came back um bringing a lot of industry into the country obviously american money so cold war politics has obviously influenced so many different countries in in because of the red scare as 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 we know it what what kind of approach did america take for germany because obviously we have the berlin wall um so could you briefly talk about that and the journey from the second world war to how they became like such an important ally again to the us and to the present day germany was a, a very was really poor um in histories uh, oral histories of germans you know they rem- a lot of them remember the period after the second world war as the worst period mm. um when there wasn't a functioning currency and uh the, you know people were really poor um and uh you know the main currency at that point were were cigarettes they should have um, invented bitcoin at the time maybe that bitcoin would have been <laughs> And the solution to that problem of not having a, a, a usable currency was to issue, um, was for the allies and the American, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Americans, French and British to issue a new currency called the Deutschmark, hmm. which would be tied to the U.S. dollar. Um, now when, uh, that, when the, uh, the kind of Western allies did that, right, that was a challenge to the Soviet Union now that Germany was going to be tied to U.S. financial markets um, and could not accept that. And that began the siege of Berlin, mm. um, which lasted for, uh, I think, 11 months or something like that. And uh, Stalin eventually gave up. But that split the country between a, the eastern sectors and the western sectors. And the western sectors, um, what became West Germany, um, issued a new constitution that was overseen by Americans called the Basic Law, uh, which laid out all the rights uh, and institutions of a of a democracy. Um, and uh, the Soviets had their own constitution. They eventually had a one party state. And Germany was then uh, divided. Um, and then, really important was the Marshall Plan, right, which uh, sent. You know, Hundreds of millions of dollars um, gave Germans credits, hundreds of millions of dollars to buy American goods. Okay, people think often the Marshall Plan is just giving them money. No, it was to, you know, 
buy American goods. So uh, the Marshall Plan and the Deutschmark linked West Germany immediately, right, to American industry and financial markets. And those relationships started developing. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, there was mass immigration uh, after the Second World War from East to West. And I think something like 12 million Germans who had lived in the East, and we're also talking about uh, not just within German borders, but what had been Poland and Russia, there were lots of Germans living there. They all left and they came to, to West Germany um, where they were given housing and uh, retraining. And this was enormously expensive. And the reason why they left was because you know, the standard of living and the freedoms were greater in West Germany, despite what some historians might try to argue, that in the, over the next uh, 50, uh, 40 years, uh, emigration went from East to West, you know, uh, don't know exact numbers, but at least 3 million, uh, I think something like 20% uh, of the Eastern population went to West Germany um, because they could watch TV and they saw on TV that Life was better there. Um, the standard of living was higher, and they had more freedoms. And so, you know, Germany was divided between a, uh, a you know Soviet a Soviet occupied side and a Western Allied side. And um, uh, America continued to occupy Germany, I believe, until there were still troops there, at least in Berlin, until 1991 or something. And still, their bases in in southern uh, South. Uh, uh, southwestern Germany, um, uh, and so that and that era became that. That is when America began to shape Germany. I mean, it was imposed. Democracy was imposed. They said, "Look, you know, you're going to have U.S. capitalist markets um, tied to us, and there's going to be democracy here." Um, they just dictated that. They also began a process of denazification, trying to figure out who was Nazi and also kind of re-educating Germans in, in democracy, those were really not successful. Um, the Nuremberg trials, uh, you know, they tried 24 people um, and uh, 21 of them were convicted. We're just talking 24 people, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of people were complicit in mass murder during the Second World War. And, uh, and, lot, and the, the SS was filled with was with highly educated people, with physicians and engineers, and you know, and the United States realized that they couldn't uh, prosecute all the people who committed murders um, uh, because the country wouldn't function. Um, and so uh, Nuremberg and some of the other trials more became kind of symbolic, uh, um, uh, symbolic processes of justice, um, and they followed due process. Um, as to demonstrate to Germans, you know, how, how the future, uh, you know, how justice would operate in the new Germany. Um, in fact, you know, most people got off, you know, um, and, but in any case, so Germany, be, you know, United States kind of insisted on making building, making Germany uh, a capitalist uh, democracy. And that was its huge influence on, right. on Germany more than anything else. Right. A few questions on that. So when you yeah. when you when you have the you know 
you have this country get divided and you have a lot of people, like you said, coming from the east to the west, did they have their internal immigration policies that would have like rendered that unsuccessful or had any kind of restrictions of who could come into the country? Like Because that was in the mainland. The U.S. had still immigration laws till the 65 that was very tight, right? Then it started becoming more relaxed. So how did how was that how was that kind of navigated in in West Germany? Well, if you were ethnic German, um, uh, you know, and that was kind of racially defined, you could say. But if you were ethnic German in the uh, you know late 1940s in the 1950s, um, uh, you had if you came to West Germany, you were in East Germany, or you might have actually been in Poland or something like that. Uh, uh, you came to West Germany, you were immediately given citizenship. Um, you were given housing. Um, you're given a stipend and you were given away uh, kind of some money to retrain. And the reason why is because uh, the United States and West Germany wanted to induce people to leave the East and come to uh, West Germany and particularly kind of talented people, educated people, physicians, right? Skilled workers. Um, they were the ones who came and West Germany benefited from that kind of steady stream of educated uh, of educated um, Germans from the, from the East. Um, and that was part of a Cold War policy, right? To try to compete with the East and show that the West, um, the West was better. Um, and yeah, they were very liberal, okay? We're not talking for Poles or Russians, right? They, they did not get automatic citizenship, but if you were German, um, you got automatic citizenship if you came over and millions of people did. Right, so, you know, you, you talk about the U.S. imposing democracy, and that was probably obviously the biggest influence. What is the perception now? Because you know, of Germans, like people who are Germans right now, looking at that um, decades of you know U.S. domination, I guess, and also tying into the fact that we always talk about winners' right history. So the you talked about they trying to get rid of like Nazi ideas. Did they kind of like? remove a lot of their propaganda or is some of that like what amount of that still still being studied i guess in the country well just to back up i mean i would say democracy was the most capitalist democracy was the most important influence but there was also popular culture too so movies and uh you know advertising jazz rock right uh this was the beginning of the americanization of german culture when you know uh you know american movies like uh, uh, things that people consumed, right? Or kind of cult popular culture became dominated by American ideas. Um, okay, in terms of how term, so, uh, you know, Germany is always seen as the most successful experiment in nation building in the history of the world. It was enormously successful. Nazism was over, okay? Lots of Nazis were in positions of power. So, for example, um, uh, Adenauer, who was, Conrad Adenauer, who was the, uh, Chancellor of Germany from in 1948 until 1960, I think 1961. Um, his one of his main advisor was Hans Globka, who was who was the author of the Nuremberg Race Laws. Okay, um, Kurt Kiesinger, who was another chancellor, uh, had been a member of the Nazi Party. Um, so these Nazis were never purged, um, but they became Democrats. They Change their way. I mean, it's a really incredible story uh, 
I mean, I was always interested in the rise of Nazism, but as I get older, I think, wow, how did that, you know, Nazism was pretty much wiped out. It was, I mean, it was illegal. Um, and uh, I should point out, Germany also had long traditions of liberalism, okay? So you had a social democratic movement, you had, you had liberals, you had democracy from 19, you know, 1918 to 1930, 1933. Um, those people, uh, the Democrats, liberals were exiled during the Second World War, under the Nazi period. Uh, but then they came back, right, after the Second World War, and they were the ones who were the Americans invited and put into positions of power. Um, so, you know, there were democratic traditions, uh, a democratic legacy in Germany after the Second World War. It wasn't just imposed, um, but they didn't really have any choice about, like, whether they would be, social, you know, communist. There was no socialist. There's going to be no, so no experiments with Adenauer's idea, no experiments with socialism in Germany. Um, so what, did that answer your question? Yeah, was so, so you you're, you're, like you were saying, you know, how uh, it's it's always surprising to see how people like who had these extreme ideas kind of convert and kind of help shape the country again. But it's like, you know, when, when you're a kid and you want ice cream, but if your parents are like, I'm going to ground you and you're like, okay, I don't want ice cream, then you change your ideas when there is some kind of punishment in place, I feel <laughs> like. So in the, in the, in the, in Germany right now, I don't know, I haven't really looked into it. Uh, is there like a resurgent of the extreme right that we have in the US? And, and if not, like, why is, why don't we do the same thing that we did in Germany in the US? What, what is, what is different? Uh, okay, I, I mean, I'm not such an expert on current kind of um, uh, fascist or I don't know, kind of right wing movements in in Germany. I mean, I know they came out of uh, you know poverty in eastern Germany after unification, um, and um, so I'm not really. I, I, but it's not analogous. I mean, you don't, you know, this is Germany, nineteen. 35, this is a country run by, you know, who people who will be murderers um, uh, and work very successful at that. Um, and we're talking, you know, 4 million members of the Nazi party, um, you know, 8 million members of all sorts of other Nazi organizations. Um, I mean, a, a, a country complicit in, in, in mass murder. Um, there are also lots of Democrats, I should point out, that not German... Germans were not all, you know, fascists. Most of them weren't, you know. Um, uh, uh, but I, I don't think it's analogous at all to what's happening today. Now, modern Germany, how do they still, like, how do they look at that period? America was beloved after the Second World War mm. um, in, in, West, in West Germany. Mm. Is, um, it, is, is that like, like the Stockholm Syndrome? Like you get kidnapped and you start falling in love? No, with because they brought peace and prosperity and democracy. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the Germans remembered, you know, early 20th, the first half of 20th century is pretty bad in Germany overall. Um, and uh, Germans remembered that their lives really began to improve in 1948 with the, with the currency reform, issuance of the, of the Deutschmark and the linking of uh, Germany to U.S. financial markets. And, um, and it was, the U.S. was, was seen as the, bringing democracy and prosperity. Um, and, you know, it was beloved. America was really popular until the Vietnam War. Um, and, 
Then the left started being critical of the United States. Um, the, there were massive protests in Germany in 1968 um, against American involvement in the Vietnam War. And I think at that point, America's reputation began to decline. I think overall, people still really um, uh, uh, look to the United States as a model of, uh, for prosperity and democracy. Um, but, you know, in, by the 1970s, there was a rising kind of left-wing uh, groups. Uh, a lot of uh, left-wing groups opposed um, U.S. occupation of Germany, particularly uh, the placing of nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear uh, missiles in Germany um, and uh, thinking that, the, you know, we're a sovereign country and we're a peaceful country. We don't want the war-making imperialist United States. Um, and so America repu reputation declined. Um, and then, you know, it really declined after Guantanamo. You know, Guantanamo. I mean, after U.S., you know, the war on terror and, uh, you know, U.S. started violating human rights. Uh, I, I don't think they see the United States as a as a beacon of of democracy <laughs> anymore. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, if anything, I think it's the reverse now. I think people see Germany as Angela Merkel as someone who feels like she has an obligation to the uh, had an obligation to the world um, to bring in um, uh, refugees, even though that was not popular. Um, and uh, you know, Germany's a leader in the Kind of environmental movement um, and, and defending human rights, and it doesn't get involved in kind of uh, military conflicts um, the way the United States does. And so, I, you know, Germany's United States's reputation has really declined over the last seventy years, um, particularly beginning in, in you know nineteen sixty-eight. I think is the real turning point. Yeah. Um, so I, I we I know we briefly talked about like. Germany's influence on America. Is there anything like any specific story you would like to share before we kind of wrap wrap the episode here? Germany's influence on United. So that's I prepared this interview and there's so much more. Right, right. I love, I love, I love, I would love to hear some. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because I'm a German historian, and you know, this is all old stuff to me, and I'm always, you know, uh, you know, things that I don't know, I'm more interested in. So as I was preparing this, um, but. Uh, you know, Germans really infused, German immigrants infused America with democratic ideas. So that uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of Germans, I mean, most probably left Germany for the United States for economic reasons, um, but hundreds of thousands left because they were Democrats, particularly um, after the failure of the uh, 1848 revolution. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands came to the United States for political reasons, um, and these were kind of real. Dem uh, one of the problems was all these Democrats left Germany, and so Germany was now devoid of kind of Democrat Democratic leaders. Um, these people, uh, these Germans, at this point settled in the Upper Midwest, so you know Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Michigan, um, and you know they became uh, known as real abolitionists. Um, supporters of uh, citizenship for after the war for uh, for for African Americans um, and even today um, if, I mean I, I I lived in Wisconsin for a while and due to my heart I think more people vote per capita in the Upper Midwest than any other region in the United States 
And that's that's a legacy of uh, German German Democrats coming to the United States. Um, so that was uh, 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 Germans also. Um, okay, after the First World War, kind of German influence just kind of disappeared. Okay, Germans at that point, like nobody wanted to be identified as German, and German culture really, uh, you know, that people stopped speaking German. Um, but before that time, uh, the immigrants in the United States, German immigrants, um, they saw themselves as still German. They didn't think of themselves as just Americans who were similar. They saw themselves as German and they had German schools and they had, they kids would read German books. Um, they belonged to German, uh, associations. They brought this associational life of, of sport, of kind of the Turners, right, which were gymnastics groups, um, singing groups, <clears throat> and uh, continued to speak German. Uh, there wasn't really a contradiction between being American and being German in this 19 up until the first up until the First World War, um, and uh, you know particularly uh, the German influence was uh, was great in education. Um, American elementary schools were modeled on the Prussian school system, um, and particularly American research uh, institutes were modeled on uh, state state universities were modeled on the German uh, on the Humboldt University, um, and also you know academics. If uh, kind of professors, scientists, if you were if you wanted to kind of be well educated, you went you did you studied in Germany at some point, um, uh, <clears throat> and so there was. You know, uh, I just found this once. So in 1890, there were 800 German language newspapers. In the United wow. States. Kind of amazing. That's isn't insane. It? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, that gives you a sense of like how German, right. you know, Ger Germany was still part of, uh, of the United States. Because uh, I don't think we have 800 newspapers in the country to, to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, they didn't really have large, uh, large uh, circulation. Um, and, uh, and then there's this other period, you know, of um, of exiles um, coming, you know, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. Um, so Reformed Jews. Um, I mean, Germany was the place uh, where Reformed Judaism started, and they brought Reformed Judaism to the United States. Um, artists like George Gross, uh, scientists like Einstein, uh, also very fine. Um, uh, on Brown, right? He, led, he was an SS member who then led the rocket program and you know, U.S. astronauts to the, to the moon. Um, Hollywood, uh, Marlena Dietrich, Billy Wilder, who, who directed Casablanca. Um, and so the United States was infused uh, with uh, talent from Germany as a result of uh, Nazism and the, second, and the Second World War. And I, I always tell my students, World War, the World War One, World War Two was was great for the United States. Of course, like, <laughs> of course, I think so too. Really benefited from it. You know, we got all the talent, and yeah. we became the richest country in the world. And you know, um, 
you know, it was really. <laughs> no, you, U.S. seems to always benefit from wars like after the First World War, the and also minorities. I feel like women started getting the right to vote. And after the Second World War, you had, you know, the civil rights movement. It's like when you see people of, uh, you know, color going and fighting for the country, you have to kind of change your views on, oh, they're probably equal to us. So that kind of also, yeah. I feel like, helps uh, spearhead um, yeah. uh, progress in America. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and, but it, it's pretty interesting that German influence on the United States really ended in the, in the first world war when Germany became our enemy. Um, and even today, you know, Germans are, they're very, they're very well assimilated, um, compared to other immigrant groups. I mean, you wouldn't even know that they are German, they speak German at home, um, and um, if you had to like uh, predict the future relationship between the two countries, how how do you think that's going to shape up to be like? Well, there will Germany will always be one of our closest allies. Mm. Um, democracies of the world will work together. Um, there are still kind of um, inseparable economic ties um, and common interests in. You know, promoting democracy. Although I, I don't think Germans feel that America promotes democracy as much as might have before. But the the relationship will be will be strong. I should point out that you know, UMass has just started a uh, STEM German program. Wow. Um, where we, I'll just advertise it yeah. for any of you listening here. If you're interested <laughs> in doing science and studying abroad in Germany and working in one of these great German engineering firms or working in a lab. Um, we've just started a program doing that and we'll teach you German and we'll uh, help you find internships, um, help you study abroad. Uh, and uh, we hope that would be a great experience. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and final thoughts, your projects and books that you would want people to find and, and, and any parting uh, remarks. Well, I'm finishing a book right now on uh, the 1918 revolution, which is the revolution that overthrew the Kaiser and set up the Weimar Republic, Germany's first experiment with democracy. Um, and uh, I, I'm writing a cultural history, so it, it's called Food and Freedom, um, a social cultural history. Um, and so right the yesterday, today, I'm writing about uh, couples dancing, which just kind of stormed in. Um, so my if uh, if 10 people read this book, actually, if anybody is listening to this, and when this book comes out, which is going to be in a couple of years, if you, if you read it, I will see that as a huge success. You know, I'll, an read academic and nobody, I'll read it. I'll read it. Nobody reads that. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really, this has been really fun. That's the end of the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. If you like the show, you can support it by leaving an Apple review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shafi Stands Up on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Shafi Hussain. There's some sketches I have. They're fun. I enjoyed making them. And a shout out to the podcast sponsor, Tiny Cupboard. They have some amazing virtual stand-up shows you can check out at thetinycupboard.com. Thank you so much for listening.